Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, uh, just as Travis Bone and I were about to begin today's podcast, we got a call from Stephanie Miller who informed us of the horrifying loss of our friend Eric Bollert. So uh, no silly jingles and banter today. I'd rather just play for you my conversation with Travis as we memorialized Eric seconds after learning of his passing. Uh, I've also included my very first Wednesday interview with Eric here, uh, going back to April 10 of 2019. And of course, we're going to be talking about Eric again on the Thursday show with Jody and David, who, like me, are also in immense shock at this news. So meanwhile, here's me and Travis Bone uh, earlier today. Yeah, Jody just texted too. Wow. So it was a, a bicycle accident. Is that what happened? That's um, I, I, I like uh, apparently his wife tweeted. Um, I, I guess what you what you've seen in, is the same as what I've um, I, I, I haven't seen yet. Jody just sent a text saying. Just so you know, I'm I'm rolling on this. I'm rolling tape on this. So yeah. I, I just want to say we know at this point. Um, Stephanie just called. We are about ready to start the show. Talk about comic book movies and all the nerd stuff. And Stephanie just called Travis and informed us that uh, Eric Bollert is dead. And I, I'm just I'm in stunned shock right now. Yeah, um, Soledad O'Brien tweeted, "Oh my goodness." Just got crushing news from the wife of Eric Bollert. He's died in a bike accident at age 57. Adored his kids, um, Jane, Ben, and his dogs. Oh, biking. oh my Just God. Like, and that, hit, that hits especially close to home uh, I mean, for me because... A bicycle accident. I mean, Stephanie just got back. She was going by. She, she had her outdoor biking yeah. gear on when I left. So she must have just gotten back from her ride. This is unfucking believable. I mean, Eric, yeah. what a loss. What an incredible loss. Not only someone that you and I knew personally and yeah. have worked with for many, many years. I mean, I've known of Eric Bollert going back, I don't know, 15, 20 years, going back to Blogosphere yeah, no, I... 1.0. He interviewed me for his book, Bloggers on the Bus. I mean, that seems oh, like a thousand years ago. And yeah. he is one of those guys, or I should say, tragically, he was one of those guys who was so invaluable. 
I always referred to him as an alpha liberal, a liberal who didn't take any shit from anybody and was always willing to push back and to push back hard especially obviously when it came to uh, the news media. Yeah. The commentary and making sure that things were covered right and fairly and accurately. And something that's, you know, that we need voices like him right now out there, you know, with the way the media is handling it with the, the, the stupid both sides isms that they do. That's, I mean, it's one of his terms, you know, the, I mean, it's just, it's, it's shocking. It is. Absolutely. Uh, I'm just going through the top tweets here. Ellie Mastal says, oh, no. Uh, Stephanie just tweeted, Eric Bollard, founder and editor of Press Run Media. Oh, yeah, this was this was his preview from Monday that's coming up here, uh, which I was just reading. Here's New York Tandon says, uh, I'm deeply devastated by the news of Eric Bullard's death. He's been such a strong voice for our democracy, such a terrible loss of a good and decent man. Uh, Jeremy Fassler, uh, formerly of The Banter, says, uh, I'm so devastated to learn that Press Run's Eric Bollard died today. He was one of the last people left to hold journalists accountable when they peddled false equivalencies and engaged in unmerited attacks on truth tellers. He leaves big shoes to fill. And you can say that again. Yeah. Uh, my- I mean, I don't, I, there's no one else out there that does what he does the no. way he does it. And he does it so Good. We need those voices. Yeah, yeah. Michelangelo uh, Signorelli uh, writes here, such uh, just terrible, tragic, and enormous loss for all of us. Love and condolences to his family. Aaron Rupar, stunned by the news of Eric Bullard, has passed away. I was just reading him uh, yesterday and cited something he wrote in my newsletter. We can never take tomorrow for granted. Oh, my God, you can say that again. My thoughts are with yeah. his family and his friends. Uh, Greg Oliar, this is awful news. Eric Bullard is going is doing such important work and was a great guy. A- and he's one of those guys. I-, I was going back to Blogosphere 1.0, where I-, I felt like I was kind of a newbie in that uh, Blogosphere movement that at that world, time. Yeah. And he was one of the first guys who was established, who kind of welcomed me into it and legitimized me as a writer and as a you know whatever you want to call it, a, a political commentator at that time. Yeah. Uh, Mark Harris tweeted here, this is an awful loss. Eric Bullard was a remarkable and staunch advocate for greater honesty in the press, a remarkable Twitter presence, and a man of conscience who knew how to call bullshit and who to call it on. Absolutely. Condolences to all who knew him. When was the first time Eric was on with Stephanie? How long does that relationship go back? Uh, Eric goes back. Uh, so I started with Stephanie in... Uh, 2012 and that was and so and he was already with her at that point i but i'm gonna say goes back years and years beyond that even yeah um i I remember i remember listening to him when i would when i before i was working for stephanie when i first moved to la is when i started listening to her regularly so we're talking uh 2006 and he was i feel like he was on from the beginning of when i started listening to her yeah Um, he was you know there every every monday at 7 a.m He's one of the longest standing regular guests on the show. I I can't think of anyone who's maybe been on. Well, I can think of a few people who've been on as long as Eric, but as as far as old schoolers go, yeah, he's got to be one of the earliest. Eric and Charlie and Carl Frisch to me are like the the originals. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was back when Eric started. That's when we had uh, right wing world. Mm hmm. Yeah, that was like our that was like our regular segment. We had that we had the whole the whole theme song and everything for it that we did with um Eric on on Mondays and Carl on Thursdays. Mm-hmm. 
Well, um, Joan Walsh here says crushed uh, John Amato, the founder of Crooks and Liars, uh, sort of simpatico with what Eric was doing. Crooks and Liars has always been about uh, watchdogging the press. John Amato writes, uh, OMG, Eric Bullard was a true friend and excellent reporter. Condolences. Uh, yeah. Uh, Kristen Johnston, uh, we all know her from Mom and Third Rock. She said, yeah. Uh, if you're unaware of who Eric Bullard was and the powerful and essential work he did, check out PressRun.media. Yeah, we definitely have to second that one. I mean, that's that's a memorial. I mean, it's like that. That's like a legacy that we have of his. Thankfully, yeah, yeah. You know his commentary and, and what he said and did. Um, Cliff Schechter, I just, he just he just tweeted, "Wait, what? Oh my God, nothing, just nothing can ever sli- even slightly prepare any of us for the tragedy of this nature." I've known Eric; he was a fighter for what's right, and while also being a really good guy, I'm speechless. After we uh, talk a little bit uh, more here, Travis, what I think I'm going to do is uh, link up one of my previous talks with Eric. Uh, yeah. Just replay I mean, something else that, uh, you know, I think either the most recent conversation we had here on the show or maybe even the first one. We've had several. Eric's been on this show a bunch of times, The specifically the yeah. Wednesday show. And, uh, God, he's always – he was always so reliable, always so um, – uh, just right on the spot, always hitting the target. I, I never worried yeah. that Eric Bullert was going to kind of go off and, and kind of miss the narrative. He's always yeah. been uh, just laser focused on what the issue is. And based on what we've seen in the past week or so alone with this revelation from CBS News, where they hired Mick Mulvaney with the exclusive yeah. purpose of getting access when, not if, the Republicans win back congressional majorities in the midterms. Yeah. My God, what a time to lose Eric Bollert. A uh, voice that we need so bad. Yeah. Uh, so much misinformation happening out there, and not just from Fox News Channel. Yeah. The American people, by and large, American voters, believe that unemployment is worse now than yeah. where it was when Joe Biden started. Yeah, and this is where the... the, the, the the media has to be more accountable and that's that that's what eric was calling for you know we we, we, just think what kind of shape we would be in as a country and as a political party in the biden presidency if the media you know looked at it with an honest lens like eric Mm -hmm. was telling us to or telling them to and i i I have to say this uh i am so especially devastated for stephanie um, not yeah. only losing is- J- Jamie overnight, uh, her dog, but also uh, now one of her closest allies on the air. Uh, yeah. Just staggering. Let's see, David Dayen writes terrible news about Eric Bollert. The first time I was ever mentioned in a book was in Bollert's Bloggers on the Bus, as was I. In yeah. fact, <laughs> this is a funny story. Eric called me to interview me for the book. And I was distracted. My animation studio at the time had already started to collapse. It was sort of in the early days of the Great Recession. And so I was struggling to uh, keep my head ab- above water at that point, business-wise. And so I was kind of distracted, and I did a horrible interview with Eric. And bless him, I was able to call him back a few minutes later and say, can we cover some of that stuff again? I'm just, <laughs> my brain wow. is out out to lunch. I, I don't know what I was thinking when I said a few of those things. Let me clarify some of the stuff that I said. He was completely welcoming and inviting of that and quoted me quite well in, in that book, which I still have a copy sitting right over there on my bookshelf. God, I, I can't express how 
devastating this is that he wasn't just some guy on Twitter that we happen to know who would yeah. write some funny takes or some interesting salient takes now and then. This was a, a crusader for a, a noble purpose, which is to hold the press accountable at a time when ratings and network profit, corporate profit, uh, supersede the facts, supersede reality. Yeah. Uh, you know, just the other day, CNN did this entire segment about uh, what people are thinking out there regarding gas prices and the economy. Rather than debunking what people are thinking when they're wrong about it, like blaming Joe Biden for the gas prices when he had nothing to do with it, but in fact, blaming right. Joe Biden for inflation. This is the kind of climate that we're in right now. Going back to what I was saying about uh, that uh, poll number showing that people don't understand where unemployment is right now. And I guess in that regard, I'm very grateful for uh, people who are also on the same track, like Soledad O'Brien. I think Soledad O'Brien is, in a sense, especially with no more Eric Bollard, Soledad O'Brien has to become almost the conscience of the media. Yeah. And it's so goddamn important. Oh, yeah. Man. I mean, it, it's right, right now... You can't say that more than ever right now. It's like this is, you know, with so much is at stake. And, you know, we, and we're seeing also, you know, the effects in like in Russia with the propaganda and how yeah. when media isn't held accountable, the lies that they tell their people. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, what was it this study that came out this week about people who were paid Fox watchers who were paid to watch CNN for one month? Like how their attitudes changed, and and that's and that's just getting them off of a propaganda network. Let alone, you know, getting the news networks like like CNN and yeah. you know MSNBC, ABC, NBC, you know the the main the broadcast media, mm. just to get them to be accountable and to cover these stories with a little bit more honesty and legitimacy. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't know Eric as well as I knew Chez. I'm just thinking in terms of the impact, the loss, the emptiness, the empty seat that's going to leave at the table. And uh, Eric is a big deal uh, as far as that goes. It I know. Makes me think of losing Chez or losing Anthony Bourdain, voices that are so invaluable to our times that click into the things that are plaguing our country right now in a way that few others actually can. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Eric was uh, a legend in that sense. Uh, Frank Conniff writes here, horrible news. Eric Bollert's feed was the first one I'd go to every day on Twitter. I was worried something was wrong when he hadn't uh, posted for the past couple of days. Uh, his writing greatly influenced my own thinking about our horrible media. Rest in peace. Uh, David Korn writes, my deepest condolences. Eric Bollert was a passionate fighter with a sharp eye for media hypocrisy. His voice will be missed. And uh, yeah, here Stephanie just uh, tweeted, oh God, oh no, Eric yeah. Bollert was my hero, my rock, my North Star. I just saw that one. Yeah, she, I mean... <sighs> Shattering. And, and and to say he was prolific is an understatement because yeah. just I can't tell you the number of times I would prep Stephanie on Sunday for, you know, his appearance on Monday and he would have something new out that we would have to read before the show because yeah. he was just constantly always, you know, churning out 
these amazing takes. Yeah. And that was the thing about Eric. That's the thing that attracts me to a, a lot of different writers and personalities, people who uh, cover politics, especially is he was, I want to make sure I get this pronunciation correct. <laughs> it's a word that I write, but I don't often say indefatigable in indefatigable. I don't know if I'm, I'm hitting that, but he was unstoppable. Let's try that one. You never got the sense that Eric was getting tired or frazzled or overwhelmed emotionally by the things that he was covering. He was a goddamn juggernaut in the most literal sense. I mean, like you can imagine him wearing the juggernaut suit and bashing through a brick wall and say, yeah, this is hypocritical. This is ridiculous. Why are we covering this story or why are we covering it in this way? And he never let up. He was ceaseless. And, and that's he, and amazing. He, he, like you said, he loved it and he was passionate about it. He just, he, he, yeah, he, he was unstoppable and yeah. he would go with that. He would, he would, he would keep pushing through all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just, uh, uh, just shocking and horrible. Yeah, well, uh, if it's you need a rough to, week yeah, in it the is. Stephen Miller world. It really, really is. Uh, uh, and for the, the world in general, the, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and wow. that's and that's the thing. That's the additional tragedy to it. There's a personal side to this. A friend of ours, someone we knew, uh, an ally, someone else in the trenches. But it's a loss to the coverage. It's a loss to the fight for what is good and what is moral and what is constitutional. And, uh, you know, it seems cliche to say it, you know, it's a, a loss of a soldier who was in a, in a fight for American values at a time when American values are in sh very short supply, uh, most shockingly by whatever it is, 74 million Americans. And uh, and not to mention the corporate press and uh, and Eric was uh, a hell of a goddamn soldier pushing pushing back against all of that. Um, look, if you need to uh, yeah. take off, if you want to go and 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 t talk this uh, talk about this with uh, with Dylan or uh, just go and 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 do your thing, that's perfectly fine. No, I mean if 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 you if there's anything that you uh, yeah, I'm I, I I'm like at a loss for words right now as far as what just. I mean, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I was, I, I, I was, I was ready to talk comic books and be in a good mood. <laughs> I know. Well, we're gonna have to do it again. I mean, we're we'll have to. We'll, we're we'll, we'll have we'll, to reconvene when there's not so yes. much tragedy. Because yeah. I think it would have been horrible for us to just uh, no, move I, on. I agree. No, 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 no. I agree. Completely. Talk about Picard. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the season's almost over. We can do we can do it. We can we can play catch up on that when the season ends. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So what we maybe we could do, maybe we can uh, reconvene next Wednesday or something like that and pick up where we left off. But I think it was important uh, today to yeah. uh, memorialize no, we had to, no, Eric. This is, and, this is this is the most important thing. Yeah. yeah and I we're just, again, we're just learning about this. And speaking yeah. for myself, I, I don't feel like I'm articulating myself well enough because we're just now observing absorbing this news. I mean, literally yeah, we, we were, we were talking about Jamie, which would have been off the air. And then th your phone rang and it was Stephanie. And I could hear what she was saying just through the, through your phone, the, the, through across the, the microphone, yeah, yeah, across through the microphone. And I, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. 
It's just one of those things where you don't imagine that could ever possibly happen. Like on the list yeah. of people that could potentially die this week, the last person on that list yeah. I would have thought of was Eric Bollard. And then yeah. going back to the bike accident part of this. That hits uh, close to home for you and Stephanie. I mean, like I said, she was out, she was out biking today. Yeah. You know, Wednesday's her outdoor bike day. She was, she was dressed to go out there and, you know, kind of, have her moment of Zen you yeah. know, on that bike. I know bike riders are annoying. I am, uh, yeah. as, as you said, I, I am a bike rider. Uh, Stephanie is a bike rider. Uh, there are many other bike riders who coast through stop signs or, you know, get in your way when you're late for work or something like that. But in memory of Eric, at the very least, maybe take a little extra time on the road to keep an eye out, especially now as weather's getting a bit warmer and there are more bike riders out on the road. Take a little extra time to be a little bit more aware. Yes, bike riders can be annoying, but but what's protecting them from death is basically a flimsy helmet and a teeny tiny thin layer of lycra. And that's the only thing between a bike rider and death. You're in a car, it's a 2,000 pound bullet basically, and so to me, the onus has always been, I don't want to turn this into a political debate about what bikes should be and shouldn't be on the road. But yeah. in that sense, you're the bigger person in that car. You're the more dangerous vehicle on the road, potentially. And yeah. irrespective of whether that bike rider is being reckless and zigzagging through, you know, even on the sidewalk, zigzagging through uh, pedestrians or around cars in the city, uh, just be extra aware. That's all we're asking. Just yeah. an extra bit of awareness for bike riders because in that fight, in a argument between a bike and a car, the, the car, car wins. always wins. Yeah. And today in the, uh, one of the most tragic ways possible, uh, Charles yeah. Johnson from little green footballs writes here. I'm stunned. What a terrible loss for all of us. Eric was a fearless advocate for the truth and a fierce critic of media malfeasance. When I made a break with the right years ago, he was one of the first to welcome me, and I, uh, I'll always be grateful. I'll miss him. So a wonderful sentiment there from uh, yeah. Charles Johnson. Uh, yeah. God. I, I certainly have to echo all of that. Um, yeah. No, I'm getting, like, I'm getting text messages from you know, Jody and, uh, Frangela, Sue in Rockville. Um, she called while we were, um, you know, on, on the line, she texted as well. I mean, yeah, I'm just seeing, I've got, I'm getting text messages here. I got one from, uh, Jody and, and David Ferguson. Uh, yeah. The family. I mean, yeah. this is the family, right? Now. I mean, this is like, this is family. Yep. Yep. This is a, a yeah. Member of the Stephanie Miller show family, uh, you, you know, know, just and, a close friend and, um, someone that I personally admired quite a bit. Um, yeah. You know, I think going back to what I was saying about uh, Eric Bollard as a juggernaut, um, those of us who cover politics, and I'll speak for myself, but I, I get the sense that you kind of feel this as well. Those of us who cover politics every damn day, down to the detail granular level, as Rachel Maddow likes to say. It's, it's like we're like pressing our eye against the microscope. Yeah. You know, the, the, the magnifying glass lens, 
with it right on top of, you know, the subject matter that we're looking at. It's just, it's, it's, it, I mean, we're so deep in it. Yeah. I always envision it sort of like this beam of red hot plasma that shoots out of my computer screens and that we're constantly sticking our face into it as our skin kind of melts away, like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's kind Accurate. of the experience on some days, really. Yeah. And, uh, and it's so hard to maintain composure, professionalism. It's hard to, remain centered when you're seeing this level of tragedy. And as you know, over the past 20 years, when I've been actively working in political commentary and blogging and so on podcasting, um, it's gotten progressively more threatening as time has gone on. It hasn't gotten easier to do this. It's actually become more difficult as the crisis becomes, or as this, a series of crises have become more existential and, Knowing that, even still, Eric was steady as a goddamn rock. You could yeah. always rely on him. You know, it wasn't like you would go to Eric's Twitter feed and he would be going there. Oh, I'm so exhausted with politics. I can't deal with. I'm going to have to take a couple of months away from politics and come back to it. Never, ever, ever, ever. That you never see and that there there. Was, And there was always. He was critical, but there was always a positive energy. Yeah, in what he said and did too. Mm-hmm. That's that's the other thing, and I and I and I feel like that's something that we need. Yeah, more yeah. of. I mean, he he I mean he 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 was strong, and he would call bullshit. But there was, you felt like he was working towards a solution as opposed to trying to create more problems. He right. was trying to make things better. He was yeah. trying to solve problems, and that's. And that that's that's what we need more of in this world, you know, not complaining and, oh, I'm just asking questions here. We need people who are actually looking at the problem and trying to find the solution. And that's what Eric did, too, with the media. He was trying to find a solution to what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I get the sense, too, that he was taken seriously by people in the news media, professionals, yeah. uh, you know, whether it's segment producers, hosts, uh, reporters and print in the print press and online that he wasn't perceived as a crank. He, I don't think he came off as necessarily as a polemicist. I think yeah. Eric was uh, respected by the people that he criticized. That was just my feeling. I mean, I don't know for a fact, but knowing how much someone like, for example, Soledad O'Brien has embraced Eric. Soledad O'Brien being yeah. you know, a multi-decade veteran of television news. And she has been one of the biggest promoters of Eric's work. I think maybe even second only to Stephanie, as far yeah. as making sure people know what Eric was doing. And to me, that spoke volumes in terms yeah. of the level of respect that Eric commanded. Where, you know, some of us, and <laughs> I'll speak for myself once again, who often incorporate fart noises and four-letter words and all the rest of oh, it yeah. into our political <laughs> commentary, maybe not as well-respected as someone like Eric, who could find that gentle balance between being a tough talker and saying what needed to be said while also being able to joke about it, too. And yeah. there was a, a fine balance between those things. And it's very yep. difficult to balance. It's very difficult to balance those things. that still be taken seriously. Trust me. I know, but yep. Eric and, uh, could do I it. can also confirm for you. Um, I'm on a group text with, um, with Carl Frisch and, uh, Chris Lavoy right now as well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, Chris confirmed that, uh, Carl and Eric were our, were our very first two regular guests on the show. 
Wow. So wow. Eric's Eric's been there since since the beginning. Incredible. What a what a loss. Uh, well, yeah, you know, we shock. also have to like, you know, just be thinking of, you know, Tracy and the kids, you know, yeah. you know, I, I can't imagine what, what, what this day has been like for them. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, you know, one of those situations where you want to go around to all the people who knew him and have some sort of group hug, uh, I, I hope um, his, and I, I suspect it will be, if there's a memorial, it's going to be a hell of a thing. Uh, yeah. I think there are going to be uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who would have nothing but glowing things to say about Eric and his work. Uh, I can't even imagine what, his, as you were saying, I can't even imagine what his family's going through right now. Yeah. It's not like... You know, when you have an accident like this, when someone dies under these circumstances, you don't have that lead up where you can say goodbye. You can, yeah. you know, do what needs to be done as far as, you know, preparing for an inevitable loss. Where now it's suddenly this shocking ripping away of someone yeah. who we all relied on to some degree, uh, who we all admired. And, and in the case of his family, who they all loved deeply. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, always, I, yeah, I was just gonna say like after the show today, I was like, you know, with everything that happened with, with, with Jamie, you know, long hug with Stephanie, you know, stand yeah. there, you know, trying, and I just, I can't, and like this just on top of that now, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just, it's, it's, this mm. is, this has been a rough day. Yeah, it has. Oh my God, my friend. Well, and of course, my condolences to you. Uh, you know, I know uh, your relationship with Eric and your communication and your uh, interaction with him uh, stretches back many, many years. Obviously, and and so I, I'm sorry. He's just people I'm sorry you admire you well. because he's. Yeah. You, you just can't help but admire the guy because, yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I I wish I could be more like him. Yeah, oh, me too. <laughs> you know, more me too. even keeled. More, you know. Yeah, he he was he was like 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 Stephanie said, you know, he was a guiding star. As I get older, as I, I'm now 50, I'm going to be 51 soon. Uh, it's becoming more imperative to me. And it's it's obvious, I think, to anyone who's uh, reaching this milestone in your, your growth and, and your aging is that uh, I feel like I want to express more and more often as I get older these same sentiments, but to the people who are still with us. Uh, mm -hmm. so that this isn't, these aren't, these aren't sentiments that are just reserved for memorializing someone who's lost. These are sentiments that can also be expressed to people, uh, who are dear to us and who are still with us. And I yeah. think, uh, you know, whenever something like this happens, uh, something especially shocking like this too, it reinforces that idea. And so, you know, maybe take that along with you and as a way to, memorialize Eric as a way to uh, express um, thoughts that you would have liked to have expressed to Eric, but weren't able to maybe do that with someone else, uh, you know, yeah. and there, there are quite a few people who I think are uh, well-deserving of, of those sentiments. So, all right, my friend. Well, right. I think uh, what we'll do now is uh, segue over and, and play um, one of my prior interviews with Eric as a way to uh, right. 
uh, say goodbye. I, I it never I it never a gets better tribute. Yeah, never gets easier. Never gets easier. The Bob Seska Show. You know, we hear a lot about refinancing our credit card debt, but I think we tune it out. I know when I was bogged down with business debt years ago, I wanted to ignore the problem and hope it went away. But don't worry, you're not alone, and you don't have to navigate the credit card consolidation process by yourself. Lightstream is here to help. So, did you know that refinancing your credit card balances can lower your interest rate and save you money, and you don't have to be a financial expert to do it? It's true. Get a fixed-rate credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream, and you could save thousands in interest. Rates start at 4.98% APR with auto pay and excellent credit, lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 19% APR. Get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000, and there are absolutely no fees. The application is 100% online, and you can even get your money in your bank account as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, right now, apply and get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get that discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Seska. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash C-E-S-C-A. Subject to credit approval, rates range from 4.98% APR to 19.99% APR and include a 0.50% auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit Terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Seska for more information. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. It's Bob Seska. How are you? Hey, Bob. How are you? Great, great. This is a landline. It usually works. Every now and then, it freaks out. It's an old phone. Yeah, it's a little, uh, it's a little old timey sounding. I feel it's, like if I sent you a photo, you wouldn't believe what. It's not from the seventies. It's like from the forties. <laughs> is this the the kind of phone that they would use on the Andy Griffith show where they would have to? Uh, maybe earlier. <laughs> we have. We have three of them in the in the house. My wife found them in England and brought them home. Yeah, so somehow the word Klondike was in your phone number. I don't know how yeah, that yeah. happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I guess we'll just get underway here, uh, Eric. Thank you for joining me today. You know, I've had sure. both. Uh, John Aravosis and Cliff Schechter on this show several times, and I consider both of those guys to be like uh, what I consider liberal alphas. I don't know if that makes any sense, but the aggressive, sometimes pragmatic liberals who don't shy away from a fight. That's generally the definition of what I consider liberal alphas to be, and I would absolutely consider you to be in that exact same category. Um, but all that said, how are you holding up? I mean, I, every time I get a new guest on this show, I have to ask this question. Right. How are you holding up in this endless fire hose of madness? 
Well, it's, it certainly goes in cycles, and it can go from not even from month to month and week to week. Uh, but, um, you know, sometimes you feel hopeful. I mean, obviously, the midterms, you thought, okay, we're going to survive this, and, yeah. you know, we're, we're going to turn this around, and, you know, we have momentum, you know, electoral momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you, you know, that, that kind of optimism fades a little bit. You just deal with the reality of all of this. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for me, the last couple of weeks have been insanely discouraging and depressing and particularly yeah. you know with the Mueller cover up and and the you know obviously I pay a lot of attention to the media and, and the media is just complete I think uh you know timidity on all that yeah. and and you know now he's you know Trump's trying to destroy the Fed he's purging the DHS and it's just you know I just did a piece of daily Kos on on he doesn't he he couldn't care less what the press thinks right uh, previous administrations, when they would undergo kind of controversial initiatives, you know, they certainly would at least worry a little bit about how the press was going to play it. They would try to get their spin out there. They would reach out to their, you know, maybe their partisan allies and try to make sure the press was coverage wasn't all bad. Mm. Trump couldn't care less. And, yeah. and you have to, you know, the arrogance stems from all his success. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's really bizarre to have a White House who feels like uh, it, it basically is never going to be um, uh, really held accountable by the press, doesn't mm-hmm. care what the press thinks, and, and has successfully, I think, just kind of bullied it. So that's another reason recently for my kind of <laughs> creeping state of despair. But who knows? You know, maybe, you know, you just never know. And yeah. something can pop in that'll kind of restore your faith. And you think, well, we can make it through 2020. But it, it does seem like a long slog at this point. Yeah. And of course, um, we've known each other or known of each other for yeah, many, yeah. many, many years now. And as a blogosphere 1.0 veteran, um, you obviously observed uh, Bush and Cheney up close as I did is yeah. uh, you think is Bill Barr using the old uh, Cheney technique of selling crazy ideas with a moderate tone of voice is that what he's up to is he doing Trump's bidding just by by being even keeled is that how he's getting away with it you know it, the, the whole Barr situation to me has been uh, incredibly distressing and depressing and, and and I go back to his confirmation hearing in the winter uh, you know, Democrats ran the hearing, and I, I just sat there and watched it. I was kind of completely befuddled <laughs> because if you if you know his history, if a you know his awful history with the Bush administration and the Iran Contra pardons and things like that. Yeah. But even more recently, you know that twenty page memo he wrote the DOJ last year, you know, ripping into the Mueller report, basically saying you know Trump could never be. Uh, indicted for obstruction of justice. And I was watching the hearing and it was just, you know, very collegial. Um, <laughs> and, and, the, and, and the narrative was Democrats thought, well, this is the best we're going to get. You know, they yeah. just got rid of that temporary guy whose name I can't even remember anymore from Iowa, the football player. <laughs> right. Um, he was, who was obviously not qualified and was obviously in over his head. Yeah, Matt Whitaker. And maybe, yeah, and maybe you think, this was all part of the plan. Hey, let's put in this dope uh, for a couple months, and then when we put in our guy, he'll seem to be, you know, intelligent, and and Democrats will kind of uh, breathe a sigh of, re- uh, you know, a sigh of relief. And 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 that was kind of the Democratic approach was, well, he's an adult, you know, he worked for Bush, so he must not be completely insane. 
and things like that. But I mean, you know, the 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 gig was up. The jig was up the whole time. Yeah. I mean, it was so obvious what they were doing, and what they were doing was, and Trump tweeted about this relentlessly. Jeff Sessions recusing himself drove Trump insane. It was literally the one ethical thing anyone in the Trump administration has ever done. And because Jeff Sessions went to the DOJ professionals and said, should I recuse myself? And they said, yes, and he did. And Trump never forgave him uh, because he knew he had problems and he knew he needed a concrete backstop. So Sessions was recused. So if Mueller sent a report to the DOJ, it wasn't going to be Sessions looking at it. It was going to be Rod Rosenstein and somebody else. So he needed his guy. Yeah. You know, uh, Barr writes this 20-page job application, <laughs> you know, this memo, <laughs> basically, which was his job application. Trump brings this, you know, this has been in off, off the sidelines and says, you know, in January, well, November, he fires Sessions for no reason, really. Yeah. Uh, not that he ever has a reason for firing anybody. Puts in Barr, and then lo and behold, you know, Barr gets the Mueller report and says, oh, by the way, Trump can never be uh, indicted for obstruction of justice. Right. So back to your question about how a Barr getting away with it. Yeah, uh, I think it is that kind of demeanor. Um, you know, he, he doesn't have kind of a radical background. Um, he's clearly part of the cover-up, and he's clearly his, – his only job at the DOJ right now is to protect Trump. I mean, his appearances before Congress this week have been – you know, incredibly irresponsible. Uh, we, we are, I mean, I, I, I was tweeting this three weeks ago. I said, we're never going to see that report, not in any serious yep. form. Mm-hmm. There's no way. I mean, it's going to be filled with crazy redactions. The, the redaction fight will go, will be in court for a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, mm. um, he, he is, he is, you know, he's, He's uh, Trump's George Mitchell at this point. Oh, yeah. Um, except, unfortunately, I don't think Barr will ever end up in prison. Yeah, I mean, my God. Uh, what I've been saying is is tracking exactly with what you've been saying with regard to the Mueller report. I, I think we're going to be fortunate. I think the luckiest scenario is that we will get a report that's sort of like Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea that's com- completely redacted, and right. we, we've got really nothing of substance to grapple onto because they've eliminated anything that might be incriminating in there, uh, if not criminal. And so I, I feel like, you know, the uh, the best money is on the concept of never seeing the report. But I think, you know, y- yesterday... We saw Bill Barr on display in terms of what he does to lull people into buying his bullshit and buying the idea of a cover up. I mean, he basically said, you know what? Look, I'm not going to answer any more of your questions. I'm going to defy you, members of the Appropriations Committee, and I'm going to do it in a way that seems completely even keeled. And in fact... As he was going, you know, I'm not going to answer your questions. The members of Congress were responding back to him. The members of the committee were going, basically responding in the same tone of voice. Oh, well, if that's the case, I'll yield back the remainder of my time. And so they're going, no, don't believe it. Don't believe what he's doing here. Yeah, and and I tweeted yesterday. I said, I seriously wish someone would go off on this guy without loudly and without apology. Because, my God, if the the scripts were reversed, you know, one thing Republicans do – 
very well, you know, I mm-hmm. uh, give them grudging credit. Uh, they do street theater very well. They do, oh, yeah. they do productions very well and they use those hearings. Mm-hmm. And if a democratic uh, attorney general had ever come in under those circumstances, Janet Reno had ever showed up after the star report said, <laughs> Oh, I, you know, three weeks after the star report and no one had ever read it. And she said, Oh, I read it. It's, it's, it's fine. Yeah, I think we're fine. I'm not going to answer your question. I mean, my, you know, uh, we all know what would have happened. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Democrats, you know, th- they don't do the outrage game, even when it's legitimate outrage. This That's isn't right. fake outrage. We are watching, you know, the disintegration of a very, you know, uh, important parts of, of democracy. Mm-hmm. And so he lulls them, and you're right, and is met with sort of an equal lull, and and then. You know, I don't know what uh, Congressman Nadler is going to do. I mean, he's going to, it sounds like he's going to have to end up subpoenaing people and it's going to drag through the courts. And the reason, you know, the reason, you know, Barr can just kind of sit there and says, I'm not going to answer your questions, et cetera, et cetera, is he knows the game is rigged and he knows, you know, Republicans have the power to do it. I mean, they've got a Republican president who is, you know, utterly corrupt and, and a Republican party that's utterly corrupt. No one is going to question anything. And he knows how this will play out and, and they can, they can slow walk this thing forever. Yeah. And it will end up in the courts, not just the redactions, uh, but, uh, you know, getting the testimony and, and, and all kinds of things. So he knows, he knows the, you know, they have the advantage. Mm-hmm. And he knows there's not going to be any kind of dramatic aha moment mm-hmm. uh, because this thing, like I said, it's just, it's just going to be slow walked forever. And we haven't even talked about how the press completely screwed up this story from day one. Yep. Um, you know, when Barr put out what I call his press release uh, and people were running around saying Trump was exonerated. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this is an administration that lies about everything. Yeah. Why on earth would they tell the truth about a report that, in theory, has the power to end the Trump presidency? Yeah. I mean, my God. I mean, how how many times are we going to go through this charade where every Trump administration pronouncement is treated as truthful and 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 legitimate? And when so much of it isn't at this point. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that we've seen uh, from the uh, the traditional press since that bar memo first dropped on the uh, on the 24th is that, uh, oh, this is a complete exoneration. As you said, that was Ken Delanian, for example, was talking about, oh, it's a legal exoneration of Donald Trump without having ever seen the report. And now what we're seeing is um, is this concept of, well, if the Democrats go down the road of pursuing impeachment, it's going to right. be a political suicide for them, and we shouldn't do this. And so basically the Democrats are cowed into inaction. And I feel like uh, people who are listening to you and listening to me and Stephanie Miller and everyone else, uh, especially Rachel Maddow, need to uh, voice their backing for these people who are pursuing the truth and and not just pursuing the truth, but setting a precedent that will last through history that we're not going to allow the imperial presidency, uh, especially under this incompetent monster in the White House who's doing all these things in plain view. I mean, are, are we literally supposed to walk away from this? Are we supposed to allow this to just happen in a, in a normal 
uh, frame. There are so many other things that I think could go into articles of impeachment, don't you? That where um, the focus should be on these potential crimes involving Russia and everything related to it, but at the same time, um, all of the other things as well, right? I mean, we, we need to be focused on everything all at once, and that's kind of intimidating, isn't it? It is. And, you know, and, and obviously Trump has tried to kind of flood the zone with just nonstop, um, you know, whether it's criminality yeah. or controversies and things like that. Um, and it's working to an effect that, you know, it, it, you know, I think Democrats are kind of hard pressed. They don't always know which way to turn. Uh, you know, the press claims, you know, they suffer from scandal fatigue and there's only so much you can handle uh, and things like that. But as I've written Recently, you know, there wasn't scandal fatigue during the Clinton 90s, right? Yeah. If, you know, we're only two months into Trump. Six years, six, seven years into Bill Clinton's term was the peak of the media scandal hysteria. Nobody went to bed mm -hmm. in 1996 or 1997 or 98 in the D.C. media suffering from, van, van, uh, from scandal fatigue. I mean, they couldn't yeah. wait, wait to get up in the morning and chase those stories. So I, I don't buy this baloney that after 26 months, you know, no one can figure out what's going on anymore just because <laughs> Trump, you know, dumps so much in there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and, and back to the, the press and the bar press release. So, they, you know, they initially ran around pretending, you know, this was some kind of exoneration. And then after about a day or two, people were like, oh, OK, well, he looks like Barr made the call uh, on obstruction of justice, even though Mueller didn't. Um, you know, uh, didn't decide on that. Uh, and so then for the next couple of days, the press kind of pretended they had read yeah. the Mueller report. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Mueller confirms, you know, the, the Mueller report is out. You know, I, all these headlines uh, mm -hmm. I kept seeing. And to me, I thought, I thought, you know, you, you, after a while, you step back, you're like, why are people doing this? I mean, yeah. this, it doesn't make sense and it's not really journalism. And I, one of my hunches was, you know, this is the most important, you know, government report in 25, 30, 40 years. Easily. And there's not a single journalist who has access to it. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of humiliating. That's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, we're, they're supposed to be in the, the, in the business of an investigation and access, and people are supposed to have sources. Or it's also embarrassing that the whole thing was an FU from Trump and the Republicans to the press mm -hmm. uh, in terms of not releasing it. So I, I think instead of dealing, uh, one way to deal with that embarrassment was just to pretend that they had read the Mueller report. <laughs> and we'll all just kind of go along with it and yeah. pretend, uh, you know, that the, the, the story is over. Uh, boy, this looks bad for Democrats. I mean, they just went all in. It seems to me, and, and uh, I'm sure you've witnessed this too, where it seems like both the Republican Party and the the news media is kind of holding its breath with Donald Trump and continuing forward as if everything is normal, like as if everything is fine and hoping that right. they don't get hit with the spatter when everything goes haywire. And, and I think they're just waiting for this to end and just hanging on tight, almost like, an, you know, like one of those uh, electronic rodeo bulls and they're just grappled right. onto it and they're hoping, well, if we just continue to cover this as if it's a normal presidency, then everything will eventually be okay and we won't have to stick our necks out is, is that kind of a, yep. what you're seeing too because I, I know the republicans on the hill are doing that like oh my god we've got to hang on tight we'll just not oppose right. this guy and and hope everything works out in the end and i don't know that it's going to work out in the end 
Yeah, I mean, they're right. The party's entire future is is connected with Trump. Um, You know, for the press, I think, you know, look, I think you make a good point. And, and, you know, when this is all over, the New York Times will look back and they'll say, oh, you know, we did all these tough stories on Trump. You know, we found his, you know, New York state taxes and, you know. But it, it's all kind of a facade. It's, yeah. it's all kind of a charade. If you look at the, you know, the coverage of the uh, Homeland Security purge over the last couple of days, mm-hmm. um, I mean, if you read that, uh, you would think there was, was a president of the United States who, who decided to make, you know, a couple of abrupt personnel changes. And, yep. and that's basically it. You know, there, there was no discussion um, that, you know, this is part of a ongoing process of Trump to hollow out the federal government to make sure there are no strong independent leaders anywhere in his government. And within that vacuum, he then grabs more and more power and does this kind of slow march to authoritarianism. Yeah. You know, once the press, you know, this is why they, you know, the Times and others won't call Trump a liar in in their news coverage. Um, Once you acknowledge you know, that he's mentally unstable. Mm-hmm. Or once you acknowledge he's a threat to democracy, you can't really go back. I mean, that's yeah. not a one-day story. Uh, <laughs> and, and I don't think they want to deal with that for the rest of the presidency. Mm-hmm. And so he's unusual. He's eccentric. That's the line that they will go up to. They will not cross over into he's dangerous. Uh, and he's dishonest and he's pathological Um, because a, obviously they're, they're terrified of the conservative blowback, you know, you know, supposed uh, liberal media bias. Mm -hmm. But again, I think more importantly, they, if you acknowledge that you can't, you can't go back to normal. That has to be the story every day for the rest of the presidency. And they're not, you know, they're not willing to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, I think some of this is coming from some of the old guard in the traditional press. Like, for example, I know you tweeted about uh, Lara Logan the other day. And uh, this past weekend, she was uh, she was on Mark Levin's show on Fox News Channel. Yeah. And they were both praising Ted Koppel, of all people. And in te- and last <laughs> yeah, month, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, last month, I'm sure you saw the quote, last month Ted Koppel uh, was doing some sit-down interview, like a TED Talk kind of thing, and he went off about yeah. the New York Times and about how the, the, the press nowadays just wants to take Trump down and get rid of Donald Trump. And he was also saying that um, he couldn't believe it when the New York Times printed what Donald Trump said in the Access Hollywood tape on the front page of the New York Times. Oh, yeah, is... yeah, yeah. He was offended at that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So this is. Yeah, a... that, I mean, that was that, that was totally bizarre. I don't, I don't, you know, it's hard to imagine what Ted Koppel is thinking. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that you know, the defense that that you know that the you know the, the press is obsessed with Trump or the press this or that. I mean, he is he is a radical figure in American history. He, he he's the most uh, you know, obviously we've never had a, you know, any kind of presidency like that. So of course the coverage is going to be different. I remember when he, you know, the first month in office, you know, conservatives ran around with all this, all these data points saying, you know, he, you know, no president has gotten the negative, as much negative coverage as Trump. And, you know, no national, you know, no, no president ever had to fire his national security 
advisor three weeks into his first term because, yeah. you know, he was uh, <laughs> sessions with a foreign adversary. I mean, yes, he's gotten negative coverage, but it doesn't spring from a vacuum. Yeah. So, and, 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 um, and just because you get negative coverage doesn't mean, I mean, that's, that still doesn't get him off the hook, the press off the hook because, um, you know, Trump deserves so much more. Uh, and, and really the thing with me is, is, is the, the press just won't find that other gear. Yeah. Right. Everything is kind of second and third year, regardless of the insanity mm-hmm. that's 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 cascading around them. And they found those gears in previous administrations. Again, if you go back to the Monica Lewinsky hysteria, uh, 18 months daily, they found a gear. They were able to uh, maintain an incredibly high level of outrage and controversy and crisis. And for Trump, they're just not willing to shift into that. Yep. It's settled into this very weird um, daily kind of hum. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the context is missing. And most of the, you know, most of the dots just really aren't being connected. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's something I think that is um, a little bit broader that may explain people like Ted Koppel, for example, that there's this cultural identity thing that's happening with Donald Trump and older boomer white guys where they see uh, this simpatico with Donald Trump. They see um, a rescuer with Donald Trump. This this guy is rescuing um, our point of view about the world from the dust been of history we are now relevant again hooray and that's why we're going to completely ignore all of this horrendous crap and i'm talking not just about the red hats who show up at his rallies but also the the wise old men the people who should know better are suddenly seeing this guy as being their cultural hero and i think that do you, well, i should just ask you i mean do you think that that supersedes that cultural identity thing with trump does that supersede their sense of of what is uh, proper in the presidency, what is uh, what is necessary in the presidency, they're just eliminating all of those rules about the uh, about leadership, uh, political leadership in this country because of this identity. Is that something that's going on? Do you see that? Well, I, I certainly think you know the cult of personality and the and a combination of the identity and the cult of personality. Yeah. Uh, they cer- certainly supersede supersede you know, Trump's agenda and what he stands for. And, and, and people almost don't care at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, I mean, you, you know, we've, we've seen the farmers who have just been completely screwed over by yeah. every possible Trump initiative. Uh, and yet we, you know, we see data, most of them, um, you know, supporting him. I think on the Ted Koppel and the white man thing, and my hunch is there's all, they, they also, fear what the Democratic Party is becoming, right? Yeah. And that's why um, Fox News loves to vilify AOC and, and the others. Exactly. Um, and, and, and so it, I think it's a combination. Uh, you know, Trump kind of represents something of a cultural savior um, because, you know, they, they see this Democratic Party becoming sort of this vibrant, diverse organism, and they don't really want anything to do with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. You know, they might not naturally, the inclination might not be kind of right-wing politics, 
but I think you're right for some people, uh, you know, if it's literally a question between black and white, they're going to stick, they're, you know, they're going to stick with the white. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, um, you know, some of my worst fears are, are being confirmed with every new day that the Trump is just benefiting from a mass delusion that's happening in this country about political leadership in the news media. Right. So there there's this misperception among I mean, a colossal number of voters. I mean, 40% of American voters, that's a gigantic chunk. How many votes did Donald Trump get in the elected popular vote? 62 million. Tens of millions of people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, And the only way I can really explain this is, obviously, it's a consequence of very, very effective propaganda coming from AM Talk Radio and Fox News Channel, and certainly uh, other uh, tertiary groups like Sinclair Media and so on. But, But beyond that, the willingness to accept everything, every bit of propaganda that comes out of those uh, news outlets. See, and I I hesitate to even call them news outlets. They're not. They're entertainment entertainment networks. Um, But but knowing that, knowing that that's how it gets generated, the fact that so many people bought into that to the point of electing this crazy person. And and there's a great, uh, I've been talking about this stand-up bit uh, by John Mulaney for uh, at least a year now. And he does this whole bit about Donald Trump being a horse in a hospital. Sure, sure, sure. And then when you ask these people, say, well, why the hell did you let the horse in the hospital? And they respond by saying, well, because the hospital was mismanaged <laughs> so you've let a horse in there to fix it oh i see that's how things work D- does it it really it seems like um the consequence of just some massive degree of brainwashing doesn't it well i mean if we go back to the you know uh, yes i think it does brainwashing is not probably too strong of a word um but i mean if we go back to trump's victory what a uh you know, he's going to have those hardcore loyalists. He's going to have the right wing. Um, but to me, it was interesting, you know, the um, you know the people who went from Obama to Trump or the people who were kind of soft Democrats. And the theory I've always had is, um, you know, Obama was so successful and he made it look so easy for eight years. I think there was this creeping feeling that it didn't really matter who was president, mm-hmm. right? I mean, how how bad could it be, you know? How much danger could we be in? And so if there were X number of people who were not going to vote for Hillary Clinton ever, for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was a very kind of appealing idea of, you know, if Obama could do it, but, you know, kind of anyone could do it. And, you know, not much will change. The problem, and, and, you know, God bless him and, and, and those people made that decision. What's frightening now is, there hasn't been kind of this massive fall off, you know, in Trump's support. Yeah. Uh, and when we, even as we see him as this very radical, dangerous, hateful person, I mean, there was a new poll out this week, you know, he's got 46% approval rating in, in Wisconsin. <laughs> um, and, and Jesus. you just kind of look at that and you think, wow, you know, we're, we're in for a dogfight in 2020. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, going back to the idea of impeachment um, and with regard to the election, too, I see a, a debate developing on the left 
uh, specifically about the wisdom of pursuing an impeachment process because, oh, well, why don't we just wait until the election and then we can replace him in the election? Well, it's, it's you know what? It's not really just about replacing Donald Trump. It's about holding Donald Trump accountable in a way that's going to stick to history. And if we rely on the election alone to do that and he comes and he turns out victorious, because as we already know, Russia is continuing. Russia is going to continue their active measures to attack the election. There's no doubt about that. Every indication that we've had so far shows that that's going to continue happening on top of the apparatus that's already been built around the uh, conservative entertainment complex and the Republican Party. So there's a, a lot of things, a lot of moving parts that are going to that could possibly lead to Donald Trump being reelected. And it's you know, we sure. all we all sat around and to, for most of 2004 and went, well, there's no possible way George W. Bush is going to get reelected. Right. And then right. and then right. there we were on election night going, what? Ohio, what's going on? And uh, so but I feel like that, you know, the accountability has to come in the form of drawing a line in the sand by the Democrats in the House, where even if they don't have a sense of being able to convict him in the Senate, they at least need to go forward with some sort of impeachment articles and and have a vote on that, if only to send the signal to future despots that we're going to we're not going to allow this. You start behaving like Donald Trump, you're going to get snapped back by. Um, the House of Representatives when necessary, right? And so it seems to me as if that's the that's the more strange to say it, but that's the more sensible way to go, right? You know, this is another example of Democrats are, are, are different than Republicans. I mean, Republicans particularly uh, for the last 25 years has just, or, or at least a portion of the Republican Party has just, you know, obsessed over over investigation and scandal and impeachment yeah. and trying to trying to delegitimize and drive a democratic presidents out of office mm. and democrats uh, you could argue uh, in a good way don't do that right we want to do policy but you know everything else is a distraction uh, but uh, the the downside to that is you kind of you know you kind of see the high road yeah. uh, and you know and as an electoral issue it's interesting i mean um, you know, the suggestion is that in the midterms, not a lot of candidates, you know, in the House races per se, uh, we're talking about Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't seem, it, in a way, they didn't even have to, right? Everyone knew this was going to be a referendum on him. Uh, and, and, but, but they were also, they didn't have to spend a ton of time, you know, talking about how awful Trump was because everybody knew. Uh, and, and, and so then, I think Democrats think, well, maybe we don't, you know, we don't have to become the party of anti-Trump. and Maybe we don't have to do impeachment. Maybe the, you know, the wise thing to do is just kind of lay low and, and you know, try to do it on the election day. Uh, but as you say, you know, there's certainly a good argument for trying to send a message in terms of history and a message in terms of, you know, the idea that these four years of Trump aren't going to be marked with any kind of official condemnation yeah. uh, from a Democratic-run part of the of Congress is, is really kind of remarkable. Yeah, considering what you know, considering what Republicans have done 
to utterly legitimate Democratic president. Well, you know, this is a glaring difference between the parties, obviously, where if you notice, um, Donald Trump is really being held up by that 40 percent. And one of the things they love about him is that even if he fails, at least he fought the fight. At least he went after the Democrats in a way that charged them up. Always with the red meat, always throwing the red meat to the base, to the red hats. On the other side of the equation, you have the the Democrats where if a Democratic president uh, puts up a, a, a hard fight and tries to do something, but right. that ends up failing, the Democrats then say, well, that guy failed and he let me down right, and I'm right, disappointed right. with that guy. It was like with Obama and closing Guantanamo. Obama tried like right. hell to close Guantanamo. In fact, it was one of the first things he did after he was inaugurated. And and of course, the Senate blocked him, would not finance closing Guantanamo and, and moving those uh, detainees elsewhere. And so, but the, instead of saying, well, you know what, Obama fought for that and he failed, right, but, right, but yeah. we love him because he fought for it and stuck it to the Republicans. It, 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 no, <laughs> for us, it was about, oh, he's terrible because he didn't close Guantanamo. And I'm not saying one side is is better or worse than the other side. It's just a strange observation that uh, on the Trump side, on the Republican side, they love the fight. On the Democratic side, we love results. And I don't know which one. Right. I don't know which one is better. Uh, maybe you can enlighten me on that dynamic. But uh, well, well, I'm not sure which one's better either. But I will say an important point is, you know, one of the republic. One of the reasons Republicans can feast on investigations and and, and you know these phony outrage scandals is is it goes back to the point we were, I was making earlier, and we talked about. They have no concern about the press reaction, right? I think a lot of Democrats say, well, if we go after impeachment and it doesn't work out, it doesn't get, you know, we'll look bad, we'll get bad press and, mm. and, 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 and things like that. Republicans could care less. A, they know they're not going to get bad press. I mean, they dragged that Benghazi charade around for three years. I mean, how many times? And, and the press loved it because it gave them a story. There wasn't an avalanche of stories about how Republicans are wasting time, wasting money. They're obsessed with this. No, it was. This is a problem for Hillary. It's a problem for Obama. We've got hearings. This is exciting. Mm -hmm. So Republicans have this built-in advantage that there is no downside to launching on their side phony scandals, fake scandals, fake controversies. Whereas Democrats get very nervous. But, you know, how, you know, how will this be perceived in the press? You know, mm-hmm. will we get hit? And, and so it's just, you know, talk about having your thumb on the scale. Uh, and I think that's another reason why I think, A, it's good Democrats are focused on results, like you say. But if, if you obsess so much about the press coverage, and, and the press coverage would be bad if they failed, you know, in terms of impeachment and things like that. Um, you know, it makes it harder for Democrats to, to come up with a strategy. Yeah. And meaning the Republicans kind of get a, a free pass. They can do whatever the hell they want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, they're moving forward that way now, where Donald Trump's talking about uh, yeah. a treason and prosecutions, and, and Bill right. Barr has announced that he's going to be looking at how this investigation got started, even though we already know. And, and so these are all things that typically, if they were to happen on the Democratic side, that people right. would be going, oh, my God, why are you doing this? This is uh, right. electoral suicide. 
but however, if you look back at 1998, right. you look at Clinton as the president, and uh, and Newt Gingrich going after him, and there were you know the impeachment trial and everything that worked out with uh, Monica Lewinsky and so on. I mean, look at it this way: two years later, George W. Bush was the president, and the House of Representatives was controlled by the Republicans, and then two years after that, the Republicans right. controlled right. the Senate too. So it really, I mean, as a, as in terms of long term damage. There really Very wasn't <laughs> that much damage, was there? Um, no. it's, it's frustrating to see that that dichotomy playing out uh, where, you know, you just want to say, listen, Adam Schiff, uh, Jerry Nadler, uh, Maxine, Water, all of you stay the court. Keep going. Keep doing this. Don't listen to, you know, Ken Delanian and so so, you know, because this is too important to ignore. This isn't too important to leave up to another uh, election that could be interfered with. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right, and 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 I think, um, and again, you, you know, the, when Barr was testifying, you know, in front of the Senate, and he, and he does this wink and nod uh, about the, you know, Trump campaign being spied on. Well, within hours, the New York Times headline, you know, Attorney General says Trump campaign spied on. Yeah, and it's just like you, you, you just want to like. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we're, we're so tired of hitting our head on the desk, but he's like, are you kidding me? I mean, mm. and, and again, that's another thing. This administration knows that, you know, they will not be called liars. And at least at the initial foray, those lies will be treated, will be typed up as news. Mm. In the 18th paragraph, there'll be a quote from a Democrat raising doubts about whether, you know, that quote is true. And, and so the, the, the whole system is kind of, just plays right into Trump, yeah. right? You know, they brought they they broadcast the lies. You know, they you know they put the fact check in a sidebar, and in the meantime, you know, you know Obama spied on Trump is back in the news, and it's being treated as legitimate because the attorney general kind of said so, yeah. and, and so you know we're back we're, we're kind of right back where we started in terms yeah. of the deep state stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's awful. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you follow these guys too much or spend a lot of time reading their stuff, but um, what are Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi missing in all of this? What are they not getting <laughs> about this entire story uh, from start to finish? Uh, well, I think they were so invested early on that there was no rest of the story. Yeah. Why why they felt the need to run out and try to pretend there was no rest of the story, that's a whole separate Issue. I have no. You know, I don't know enough about their backgrounds why yeah. they would want to do that. But once they went all in, um, then that was their position. They had, they were never going to acknowledge, you know, their mistake. Yeah. Uh, and then when that you know bar press release came out, you know, I think they kind of foolishly jumped up and down and said the press got the Russia story wrong and ha ha, we were right. Yeah. Uh, obviously, nothing nothing since March twenty fourth. Has has um, has, um, has has bolstered their case, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And Glenn, Glenn Greenwald is now, as far as I can tell, just basically a Trump supporter. Uh, I mean, he's out on Fox News, and he's, um, you know, talking about um, it's it's you know it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. I, it drives me crazy when he's referred to, a, you know, as a kind of a progressive or a liberal. Mm. Um, he just seems the horseshoe politics seems pretty complete with with a lot of those Russia deniers at this point. I mean, the idea. I mean, Glenn Greenwald, you know, tries to you know claim to fame as this famed 
you know, investigative journalist. Yeah. <laughs> and he's going to take the word of a Trump administration official who claims you who who read the Mueller report and then types up a four page summary of a four hundred page report. And <laughs> if you're an investigative journalist, you're going to take that four page summary and say, "Aha, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. I don't need to see the report. This this you know this hack." This, you know, Trump hacked, just cherry picked all the information, and that's all I need. I yeah. mean, come on. I mean, this is this is kind of a joke. Yeah, well, obviously, a part of his brand, part of Glenn's brand is to be a professional contrarian, to be a professional scold, where he's going to take the opposite approach yeah, to what the yeah, mainstream yeah. is saying, just just because he can and because he will and because he can probably punch his way yeah. out of that bag if he needs to with all of his various semantic uh, and rhetorical loopholes that he likes to exploit. But I mean, I think one of the problems with denialism um, with regard to that story, with regard to the overall Russia scenario, is uh, a, yeah. cons- a, a consequence of flooding the zone, where the story itself, uh, and this isn't, um, you know, a direct consequence of any sort of political strategy where Trump wants to just tweet every five minutes and make sure everyone's off guard and off balance. But with the Russia story, there are so many moving parts to the Russia story. It yeah. is something where uh-huh. you really have had to follow um, Adam Entuos and uh, Robert Costa yeah, yeah, and yeah. all these guys, Maggie Haberman, the New York Times. You have to really, and, and Rachel Maddow in, in particular, you have to follow them almost every day in order to keep track with the um all the moving pieces of the russia story and i think a lot of people who aren't doing that are bouncing in and out of the story like there was a um there was a piece in slate and i forget her last name her first name is willa but she wrote this piece in slate right after the bar memo dropped where she was like i can't believe rachel maddow's so crazy and she's wearing a tinfoil hat she's just like (laughs) alex jones and but, but then she admits in the piece that she hadn't watched Rachel Maddow in two years up until that <laughs> that first Monday show after the bar memo. And so and right. it, it seems to me as if the complexity of the story is actually working to help exonerate yes. Donald Trump and all of the co-conspirators uh, in it. Is that uh, is that what you're observing, too? Well, I, I think the complexity certainly helped Trump, as you say. It's an yeah. extremely uh, complicated story. I mean, foreign, com- you know, foreign government, uh, foreign countries, and governments, and operatives, and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, intelligence officers, and yeah, no, I mean, you you really had to dedicate several hours a week as a news consumer <laughs> over the last two yeah. years if you really, you know, wanted to uh, try to keep on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this whole idea, you know. Uh, I, I, you know, it drives me crazy. Oh, you know, MSNBC is like Fox News. Rachel Maddow is like Sean Hannity. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. like, come on, come yeah. on. I mean, let's not, what are we doing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rachel Maddow does not peddle hateful, hollow, awful conspiracies. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In fact, her, her staff is probably one of the best in the business. Uh, oh, that was the other thing that drove me crazy, crazy about the, uh, you know, the uh, Glenn Greenwald and, and, and Taibbi and, oh, you know, the press boxed the story because there were no indictments. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, they shouldn't have spent all this time covering the Russia story. I mean, that's, that's insane. Real-time journalism isn't based on what an investigation will find or what a trial will find. Right. I mean, it's like it's like saying you know OJ was found innocent, so the, the, his his trial never should have been covered. You know that was a waste of time. Everybody missed the story. Uh, it, it's a really weak argument. Yeah. You re, you report investigations in in, in uh, on a day to day basis, not based on 
if there will be an indictment, there won't be an indictment or something like that. You, you do it based on the news. So this idea of, you know, no indictment means nobody should have covered the story for two years. Uh, to me, it's just really absurd. Yeah, and is that also a consequence? I mean, in your in your time following and, and writing about the news media, I mean, do you see this as a consequence of the news media itself, where um, we feel like now, instead of just saying, you know what, this is an immoral and unethical character who is destroying American institutions and lying almost 10,000 times to the American people since his inauguration, these are things worthy of removal from office. But yet now, these days, it almost seems like we have to come up with some sort of legal predicate to... Uh, to criminally remove that person from the system. And it's not just Donald Trump. It's a, it's a lot of different characters on the stage. Um, and, and I think that the, the qualification for what, or, or the, the, uh, the factors and, and strictures that go into whether or not someone is qualified for the national state, qualified for national leadership, seems to have narrowed to criminal malfeasance <laughs> rather than these broader ideas that you can quite honestly be impeached for. I mean, you can impeach, be impeached for lying to the American public. Uh, Richard Nixon, one of the articles of impeachment, were all of the lies right. that he presented to the American public on television and elsewhere. So it seems like there's been a transformation, too, where the accountability has been much more compartmentalized into a, uh, a criminal situation, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's been done with Trump by necessity because yeah. I think the press realized uh, that all of those things you talked about in terms of what, which would traditionally make uh, disqualify you from public office, um, they didn't want to have to deal with it. Yeah. So I think they just narrowed it down, narrowed it down, narrowed it down, and they said, oh, okay, it's criminality. Yeah. So this is what we're going to focus on if he's indicted and driven from office. Um, but anything beyond that, we don't really have the moral courage to make a stand about, uh, you know, how could we possibly make, you know, that judgment about a president? Again, you know, I keep mentioning, you know, the Clinton 90s because this was kind of the last time we saw something like this. My God, the press could not stop, you know, making sweeping um, pronouncements yeah. about how Bill Clinton was not fit for office because, uh, you know, he had an extramarital affair and he told uh, I, what I believe is a single lie under oath, which, of course, Donald Trump was never forced to sit under oath. Um, so, you know, they they in the past, they have but not been shy about, you know, deciding if a Democratic president was not fit for office morally, ethically, et cetera. Uh, but they're faced with Trump and they say, oh, OK, well, it's. It, it's, it's, it's all got to be a crime. If you can prove he prove if you can prove he's guilty of a crime, mm. then okay. But well, we we couldn't possibly you know, make any kind of moral judgment about it. Right, right. Well, uh, changing gears a little bit away from Trump, at least slightly, um, you know, you and I last spoke while you were working on your second book, Bloggers on the Bus. And, and since that, since your book came out, it seems like blogs have kind of receded and have been replaced by social media. I know I spend my usual blogging time on Twitter rather than my actual blog. Um, is, right, right, right. Is, is political blogging in, in the way that we both recognize political blogging to, to, to be executed? Is that kind of dead now? Are we moving away from that? Um, I guess I wish it. I, I wish we weren't, um, because you know, you know, like everyone else, I'm addicted to Twitter, and and, and yeah. like everyone else, I see its glaring deficiencies. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, obviously, you can. It, it can be wonderful, and you can have an instant conversation. Mm. Uh, you know, for instance, we're talking about the bar testimony before Senate. You know, in the old days, you would have to wait, you know, a 
couple hours for people to type something up and put yeah. something interesting together and, and, and get some analysis. Um, obviously, now you can you can see it in almost real time. But obviously, you know, a tweet is much different than you know than a blog post and things like that. But you know, I think I think there's still an appetite for a slightly longer form. Not everyone wants to do, you know, the 240 characters or things like that. But yes, mm-hmm. I think Twitter, you know, certainly um, kind of took that spot yeah. in terms of the place where. Very political people go for, you know, it used to be sort of a daily or an hourly, you know, analysis. Now it's kind of second by second. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, it's uh, it, 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 it just makes it a completely different conversation at this point. Yeah. You know, likewise, um, you know, apart from Twitter, which, which seems like the conversation appears to be flourishing a little bit more than it is on Facebook, whereas Facebook seems to have killed blogging um, and especially, especially some of the group blogs uh, where everyone sort of uh, you know, a bunch of bloggers get together yeah. and they, they create a, a, a site. I, I wrote for a site for years called The Daily Banter, and now it's it's been sort of relegated to being a newsletter, uh, partly because Facebook cha- keeps changing its algorithm and is now punishing exactly. uh, political publications and political pages whether it's conservative right. or liberal it doesn't matter there's no discrimination when it comes to just killing them out i mean killing pages that have that took years to build uh, a following right and and so um you know and obviously this is a reaction to what happened in the election and to the threat of of being uh, uh regulated by the government um is there out of all of this, there seems like a, there's a purge or maybe kind of a slight recession going on right now with uh, online publications. Is is there a way for all of that to reemerge? Is there some sort of process that you're seeing that some of these publications can use to? Because I remember, I mean, back during Blogosphere 1.0, we didn't have Facebook necessarily to promote our work, but yet somehow we did. Right. Is, is there going to be something else that's going to emerge that's going to drive audiences back to some of these publications? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to think back. I mean, the, the, without Twitter and without Facebook, how, you know, blogs were able to spread the word. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in, in the way some people did it was in the comment section. Uh, you yeah. know, they would um, they, they would develop a following in the comment section or they would, you know, basically ask to share links via comments and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's interesting that it, that was all before you know, Facebook and Twitter made it so much easier. But you're right. I mean, anyone who built, you know, kind of a business plan on Facebook is, is screwed because, yeah. um, you know, changing their algorithm and, and, and things like that. Um, and, and they're just not, they don't really seem to be a reliable partner in any way. So, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I wish I knew if there was not something else coming along or, or, I mean, there's obviously such an appetite for a conversation, right? I mean, yeah. Twitter obviously proves that every day. Uh, so that's the good news. It's not like people have just kind of tuned out. It's not like people don't want to read about this. You can certainly make the argument that people are even more engaged now, mm-hmm. um, you know, than they were during the Bush years because of the, 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 the crisis is even, you know, we've returned to kind of that crisis stage. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, it's hard to say. It's yeah. hard to say. Um, and obviously trying to find advertising and, you know, maybe people and more people are moving to paid newsletters these days and things like that. Um, yeah. So there are options out there. None of them, none of them seem, you know, optimal. Right. Uh, so it, it, it's a very, it's kind of a confusing landscape, I would say. 
Yeah, uh, just before we wrap up, I want to ask you too, are you now uh, a permanent fixture over Daily Coast or are you, um, what are your plans? I mean, where are you kind of, where's your home base now? Yeah, that's where I've been writing um, since January. So I do, you know, usually like two or three pieces a week. Mm. Uh, There's no shortage and it's always on media stuff. Uh, And there's there's no shortage of, (laughs) you know, trying to pinpoint exactly what is going wrong. Whether it's the campaign coverage, obviously a lot of the stuff is, is on the Trump coverage. And again, I you know I think there's an appetite. People, you know, obviously, folks on the left understand, you know, how important the media is. Uh, they understand the deficiencies, uh, and I think they want people trying to you know hold them accountable. You know, you can do that on Twitter, and then it's also I think important that like the stuff I do, like I've, I've always done. You know, it's slightly longer form. You know, a lot of links, a lot of, a lot of evidence, a lot of trying to show people what exactly the shortcomings are. This is how you, you can do it right. This is how, you, this is how they're doing it wrong. Yeah. And, and I, I think it just helps to have kind of this rubber, running conversation, particularly, you know, during this incredibly important election cycle. Yeah. How, how insane is it going to be like a year from now? Um, well, I should just say, I mean, how insane is the next year going to be? I mean, the next 365 days, knowing what happened in 2008 during the Democratic primary, knowing what happened in 2016 during the Democratic primary, are you like, are you braced for impact? Do you have, uh, the proper eye protection and and helmet ready to go? Yeah. I mean, 2008 was really bad and, and most people have kind of forgotten how bad um, that was, and that yeah. was essentially pre-Twitter, although uh, Facebook was around. 216 was very... Uh, it's possible it can be worse than both of them. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, obviously, the uh, you know having such a large, diverse field, I think it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2016, everyone's focus and attention were just on these two people, and everyone you know got so wound up around these two people you know, Sanders and Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe it'll be helpful if, you know, obviously a year from now, I don't still think there's going to be 17 candidates, but, you know, maybe it'll be helpful if there's seven or eight, you know, theory, you know, top tier of five or six and yeah. people won't be focused on two personalities and things like that. But look, you know, and, and, you know, back to Twitter, you know, I think Twitter drives a fairly <laughs> negative conversation. Uh, so, I, I, yes, I am bracing because I, I think it's going to be um, uh, a largely unpleasant experience for yeah. most of us. Yeah, and especially <laughs> knowing that there are so many women candidates, and and knowing how the press has already behaved toward those women candidates, right. like they, I mean, the one that sticks out in my mind is the Kamala Harris piece about how oh she's got this amazing. Uh, 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 ability to draw giant uh, enthusiastic crowds and how that will hurt her. <laughs> I don't understand. Oh, yeah, I don't I understand, so. Eric. Yeah, what Politico the hell? Did, yeah, yeah. yeah. Politico did that. Yeah, no, I just did a piece uh, uh, yesterday looking at whether, yep. you know, if, if the press is treating uh, the women candidates uh, uh, fairly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the major two uh, criticisms so far are. Uh, you know, the amount of coverage are the women candidates getting as much coverage as they deserve in terms of the men and, and the tone of the coverage. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of criticism. I did point out what I saw uh, a couple of hopeful signs, which was, you know, again, we forget how just openly and almost jubilantly sexist the coverage 
was for Hillary Clinton in 2008 uh, and 2016. And I'm talking the mainstream press and punditry. I'm not talking the Fox News crazy stuff. So the good news is there was a weird outburst of that uh, around Elizabeth Warren, you know, in January mm-hmm. when she announced, oh, you know, she's shrill just like Hillary. She's unlikable like Hillary. God. But the, the women candidates I, for the last couple of months, I, I don't see that kind of naked sexist rhetoric anymore. And I think after two cycles of that stuff with Clinton, either the press got bored of it because it's not they're not Hillary Clinton and that was the real target, or they kind of wised up and, and understood. Um, you know, if you know, if if you're suddenly suggesting, you know, all the women candidates are unlikable, but you don't ever have that conversation about the male candidates, then that's something seriously wrong. Yeah. So I do see some silver linings uh, in terms of the, the coverage of the women, I think, more is more serious now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think there are, there are definite deficits in terms of um, how, the, how the women are being ignored. I, I do agree with that. Yeah. Well, Eric, I really appreciate all your time. And sorry about the uh, the technical problems there in the middle, but everything should be, <laughs> should cut together okay. And uh, and please, I wanted to tell you, please keep doing what you're doing. And p- your voice is so valuable in all of this. And I'm talking about a, a, a tough, uh, take-no-shit, no-fucks-left-to-give uh, <laughs> liberal voice. And I think that, uh, honest to God, and I'm sure you've seen it too, the opposite side of that, which is, oh, I don't know. We got to play games. We got to play with the Republicans uh, where you're taking a, a, a tough posture on these things and and uh, and a pragmatic one in many cases, too. And I think that's uh, immensely valuable now. So please, by all means, keep going. I, I appreciate it because sometimes, you know, I, I, at some point I do wonder, like, what am I doing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know the feeling. I, 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 I appreciate the uh, I appreciate that. And, and uh, look, I've just, you know. Even going back to my battles with Andrew Breitbart uh, on Twitter way back when, oh, yeah. um, I don't know. I just, I, 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 if I see something stupid, I, I literally can't stop from pointing it out. <laughs> I know, I know. That's my thing. Everyone makes fun of me for that because I feel like, oh, there's someone wrong on the internet, and I have to spend the next three yeah, hours no, of my no, time. I, I, yeah, that's the greatest cartoon ever. But no, this <laughs> is like particularly with the media. Like, yeah. it, it, look, you know. The day I, the day I realized I didn't want to work for the New York Times, like 15 years ago, it's so uh, liberating mm-hmm. because everyone else in D.C. you know goes to bed every night thinking hopefully they can work for the New York Times one day, and so nobody you know everyone tiptoes around or the Washington yeah. Post you know fill in the blank. Yeah. Once you come to that realization, and uh, and and I wish more people would because then we can have you know. Mm. A way more honest conversation about the press. But anyway, yeah. uh, I'm glad I could help out, and, and, and uh, this was fun. Thank you so much. Oh, any plans to be on uh, Stephanie's new network, the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't heard much about that. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to tell Lavoie to give you a call then. because Yes, yes, please do. <laughs> get ready because, you know, Eric, everyone's got a podcast now. My dad has a podcast. I, I don't know why. He's, I, that's crazy. He has no idea how to use I a know. computer, but he has a podcast. I, I know. know, I know, I know. I hear you. <laughs> All right, my friend. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.